This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 205, Ministry, Part 3. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in one more time. If you haven't checked out the first two segments of my talk with Scott Taylor and Ryan Joy, it would be well worth your time to do so. In this, the final part of our talk, we focus on the help that we try to provide for people who, for whatever reason, seem to be too much trouble. Exactly how much grease do we give the squeaky wheel? Providing service for a needy brother is one thing, but does his burden ever become an unreasonable obligation for me? Obsession is a very interesting board game. It is set in Victorian England. Players are each responsible for a particular family vying for the attention of the most important family in the area. You do that by getting important people to attend your croquet matches and your dinner parties. The more important the guest, the more prestige you acquire. The thing is, the upper crust don't want to be unattended. Unless you supply them with the right servant, they won't give you a second look. Gives me an opportunity to sound off against what I might call high-maintenance Christians. Everyone has to do to suit them. The sermons must emphasize this topic or avoid that one. Leadership must agree with them on all points or they will refuse to follow. Members must be attentive to their needs while respecting their privacy. What do we do for such brethren? And when does catering to their wishes become tantamount to feeding the monster? Yeah, those are big questions. There's a lot there to unpack. I mean, one of the first things I thought of, it makes me think of the contrast between Paul circumcising Timothy in Acts 16, but refusing to circumcise Titus in Galatians 2. You know, what's the difference? And the difference is all the difference when we're talking about this stuff. Is it something that we're doing to kind of like the Romans 14 picture or 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, where you read about being patient with each other as the weaker brethren are growing, are stuck in some areas, and you're just trying to move each other along. They're acknowledging that they're the weaker brother. They're acknowledging they have room to grow, but this is an issue of conscience, which is something we have to take so seriously and carefully, each other's conscience, each other's uh, situation. But at the same time, it could be a situation like Titus where there's somebody trying to rule, trying to bind where the scriptures don't bind, trying to, you know, run the church in a diatrophies type way. And that's dangerous. And I think the answer, at least one part of the answer goes back to what we talked about earlier. Something Scott said, you got to talk to people, speak the truth in love. You have to see them certainly for more than the problems they cause and to care about them. But you have to be willing to confront their divisiveness. You have to teach discernment. I think a lot of what you're describing there is really an immaturity issue, which is ironic because I've seen it happen in older Christians who have a lot of knowledge in other areas, but they haven't learned to discern the difference between good and evil in some finer points, like when it's time to take a stand and fight for the truth and when it's time to acknowledge a minor difference and agree we can still hold each other as brothers or when is an expedient something that is such a difference that it's worth subverting the authority of the elders and fighting for it and causing problems. I mean, a lot of the issues that Paul directs Timothy and Titus in dealing with is divisiveness. That's a lot of the focus 
that he gives on how to navigate church problems is, is when you have these problem areas in the body. So discernment for us is important about how to handle each situation is going to be a little different, but also teaching that discernment and moving people forward and knowing when it's time also to mark a divisive person and say, okay, we've talked to you, we've worked with you, you are causing trouble in the church that God doesn't want. And the next step is to discipline you differently. To me, one of the most important things that we teach young preachers in Second Timothy, the third chapter and the fourth chapter, is that difficult times will come. And that's the beginning of that of chapter three. Difficult times will come. And it's going to be people that are lovers of money, holding to a, a form of godliness, all those things we've talked about earlier. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is what is going to happen. And it's even amongst people that sit in church buildings. And that's from a preacher standpoint. One of the things Paul reminds Timothy of is that you better be ready to endure hardship. When you think about the verses that we like to talk about at this point where we're going to preach the word regardless. If it's the truth, I'm going to preach it. I don't care. And this is true. I don't care who's sitting there. If it's, if it needs to be taught, it's going to be taught because this is about my relationship with God. And that's far greater than anybody else is here. But there are times that you're going to have to endure hardship. They can't endure sound doctrine in verse three, when it talks about the ears being tickled, that enduring sound doctrine means they're going to remove you as the preacher. That's the goal is to get rid of you. So there's going to be an endurance of hardship that comes as a leader, as a preacher of, of God's word. We're told that outside in the world, of course, but as we've been t- talking about this whole time, we're talking about in local congregations, whether it's when we go to first and second Corinthians or whether we're talking to Timothy or Titus, this is what it's about because you're running into various aged people spiritually that need to learn to grow, or you're running into imposters that are going to fight back and just want to have control. And that's what we're told is going to happen. So it's, first of all, it shouldn't be a surprise, but we need to learn how to endure it, that I'm going to continue to stand firm for the truth because that's what I need to do as a child of God. And that's what my responsibility is. And I need to be willing to do those things. That's what I love about the Old Testament prophets. I mean, that's what you see in them. They knew that they were not going to be listened to, but they taught the truth and did some amazing things because of God telling them to do so. And that's, at least for me, is the attitude that I need to have when I'm facing these types of difficulties that come up. Yeah. And you talk about the preacher's role in that. In my experience, I've seen more animosity at times against elders because they're making decisions. It's like that Teddy Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena, the one that's making the decisions that has to make Those hard calls are the ones that are often most criticized, but boy, are we grateful that they're making those calls. Somebody has to move beyond just talking in the abstract about divorce and remarriage or about our practice in the church or whatever issue comes up. And God has told us exactly who those people are going to be, what, who should lead his church. The Holy Spirit appoints them, as Paul says in Acts 20. We have to 
put our own opinions on small things aside and appreciate that work that they're doing as well. But I, I have definitely found that that's, that's just going to be a challenge. And every elder that I've ever been close to has carried that with, with such weight, but also a, a lot of grace and understanding that this is, this is what they have agreed to do. And the, the kingdom is better for, such men. Well, there's a difference though, between being factious and being whiny, right? Mm. I will take a whiny Christian over a factious Christian any day of the week because for obvious reasons, I'm factious. People will tear up the church. Uh, I would rather deal with a whiner than deal with a factious person, but there is a certain virtue in dealing with factious people in that it's relatively straightforward, Mm -hmm. you know, withdraw from such one after first and second warning. If the factious person continues to be factious, we get rid of the factious person and we move on. I'm not authorized as I read the new Testament to withdraw from somebody who's a pain in my neck. 20 years ago was the first time we put up a PowerPoint. Uh, I don't think that's such a great idea. Okay. Look, 90% of the congregation likes it. Eldership likes it. The preacher likes it. We're going to go this way, and this person's going to move on, and six months from now, he's going to be complaining about something else. It's not the end of the world, but that is a different sort of drain on my ability to function, on my ability to lead in the church. People who are determined to find fault in this, that, or the other. Is there, a, is there any hope for people like that? Sure. <laughs> is, there any, is there any There's, hope for me? I guess is what I'm really trying to say. Well, what we all have to do is learn to set some boundaries and to be patient with people, but recognize, I mean, I think that to go a step further than whiny, you know, the brother who's just kind of a squeaky wheel, I think the more, in my experience, we bring people in from the world, the more needs the people tend to have, uh, whether it's teaching needs or physical needs or relationship needs, you know, they don't have the same kind of support system. They don't understand sometimes boundaries and self-sufficiency. It highlights all the more the issue that what you're talking about that that is a small issue with kind of a, a noisy, squeaky wheel Christian, but becomes even greater with just the messiness that comes with dealing with real people. Christians all have issues. I have issues, you know, all have problems, all have baggage. And the people we bring in from the world often have even more. And so it becomes important to be willing to get our hands dirty, to not hold people at arm's length, to be willing to allow ourselves to be affected and involved but also to be intentional about our boundaries, to protect our families, to protect the church and our own well-being and our ability to serve and to realize that's not selfish to set those boundaries. That is taking responsibility for the only thing we have to give, which is ourself, our energy, our time, everything we have from God to offer. I'll tell you a story that I read couple years ago, it was in a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church, I think. But this story was something that really stuck with me. The story goes that there's this guy walking 
on a mountainside down a, a road and he doesn't really know yet where he wants to go. But as he goes, he sees on the other side of the valley, a mountain with a shining city and he sees all these people bustling around and he realizes that's where I need to go. There is something there I need to do. He starts to find a sense of purpose and direction. And as he's going, he comes to a bridge across the valley and a man is standing on the bridge holding a rope and he hands the guy the rope and he says, hold this. And then the guy jumps off the bridge and he's holding the one side of the rope and the other guy's hanging down off the bridge, hanging onto the rope. He's like, what are you doing? Why do you do that? And the guy says, I need you to hold on to that rope. If you don't, I'm going to fall. And he says, well, I can't stand here forever. I, how about I pull what I can and you work with me because I can't get you up here by myself. But if you'll work with me, then I think we can do it and I can bolster you up. And the guy says, no, I'm counting on you to hold me up. And they go back and forth this way several times. And eventually he says, if you won't climb up, I will not be able to hold you. And the man once again says all the things he's been saying, I'm counting on you to hold on. And so the man on the bridge takes a breath, sadly sighs, and lets go of the rope and walks on. And it's a sort of parable, like, was that the right thing to do? What is the, what is the right thing to do in that situation? But for me, it clarifies something I've experienced over and over again. I cannot hold the rope for somebody on my own. They have to be working with me. I can nudge them forward. I can support them. I can fill some gaps. I'll be their partner. I'll be next to them if they want to do the work. But I have other responsibilities that I have to tend to as well. So that's all, that's been a very helpful thing for me the last few years. Learning how to knock the dust off your feet and when to do that, it can be such a, a difficult thing. I, I think this goes back to communication. I love Philippians, the second chapter. I know we all do, obviously, talking about our Savior. I love that right after he, they talk about him or Paul writes about him is do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I, I, I just asked the question, you know, I, I've kidded around at, at Mason about that some people's spiritual gift is complaining, you know, and you, you can, <laughs> when you come out to the, to that perspective, a lot of times for me, what I have found that that's just a symptom to the actual issue. And so I try to go back to, as Second Timothy, the uh, second chapter will end with talking about, you have people that are dealing with something, a heart issue, something that has occurred to them, and they're struggling to, to learn the value that they have as a child of God. And how can I help them understand that? And I love that it talks about uh, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. For me, just picturing the fact of where they might be held captive and the struggle yeah. that they are dealing with, and how can I help them? And, and to the illustration that was just given, I, there's only so much I can do. Uh, this kind of goes back to what we said earlier. We're not in control. I can't do anything more than what our Savior even did. I mean, 
the fact that he was willing to die just to give people the chance or the opportunity to have salvation is just amazing. I can't force anybody to try to save themselves. And quite frankly, and I'm sure you guys have dealt with this, there are people that just define themselves as victims of everything and are looking for the negative side of things. And what I love about the Bible is that it says you can change. You have to change how you're doing those things. You like to grumble? Stop it. You have trouble with these thoughts in your minds? Make sure that you take them captive. You know, there's a lot of things that that we're able to point people in the direction of, but Jesus, God, makes it so simple when it comes down to you have a choice of how you're going to act. If it's easy for you to complain and to grumble, that is the issue that you need to deal with. And what does that look like? You need to become more Christ-like. And that's um, hopefully, at least for me, has changed the perspective of how I talk to people. And and I call it the root and the fruit, focusing on the root rather than the fruit. The issue that people are dealing with is is sometimes where I think we get caught up and we're, we're putting band-aids on real big issues rather than trying to go after what the real problem is, why people are complaining. And I think realizing that that is the work is part of what frees us up in doing the work, you know, to realize it's not supposed to be a church full of perfect people that have it all figured out. I mean, like that's the ideal, but we're moving towards the stature of the fullness of Christ. And when you see a church like the Corinthian church, they're a mess. There's so many problems and that's not okay, but it's a function of them being this church full of new converts, this church full of people that are coming from the world, from an awful godless lifestyle into Christ. And they have a lot to learn. And if we are finding ourselves in a church where everyone already has reached this plateau of maturity, then we're probably not bringing the gospel to the lost enough. There, We need to bring in the messy people, bring in the, the sick, because they're the ones that need the physician. Yeah. One of my favorite passages in Proverbs is uh, Proverbs 14, 4, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of an ox. You know, clean churches are dead churches, uh, going kind of to what Ryan's saying there. Uh, churches that are alive are messy. Weird stuff happens. Problems come up. You know, there, there are churches of eight people in their 70s that rock right along week after week and never grow, never going to grow at perfect peace with one another. Maybe that's all they've got. Maybe that's all they're going to get. Maybe that's what the church at Smyrna was. But that's not the church that I aspire to be part of. I want to be a part of a church that's, that's lively, that is functioning, that's growing, that's messing up and fixing problems. I want to be a part of, of fixing those problems. I, I think I've, I've, uh, grown a lot in my mentality, I'd like to think I have anyway, over the last 30 years with regard to my expectations of other Christians. If I go into this frustrated that they haven't fixed all their problems yet, even though I've preached at them specifically, I glared at them from the pulpit three weeks in a row, you know, how dare they turn a blind eye to me? I'm missing the point with regard to that. Jesus is very, very patient with me and I need to be patient with my brethren. There's a time, obviously, when patience should run out, and we need to take it to the next level. I think we would all agree with that. But that's not when I become uncomfortable. When I become uncomfortable, I need to keep working on me instead of getting frustrated that they're not coming around. 
I think it's what we talked about earlier about the apostles. You look at the choice of apostles and you think about, we, we always talk about, um, you know, Simon and, and you talk about Matthew, but all of them would have been upset with Matthew from a Jewish standpoint, him being a tax collector. But Jesus changed that. That doesn't mean that there wasn't conversations that they had to work through and, and you know, different disagreements that they would have had because they were human. But the answer was right there with them. If we take him off as leadership, you're just going to get mad. I mean, you're going to lose patience. You're going to lose your drive to want to help people because of what they're dealing with rather than looking at Jesus. For me, one of the greatest things that I try to remind myself of all the time is that Jesus died for this complainer. He died for this sinner. He died for me. It just changes the way that I talk to people. And hopefully it takes away some of the pressure that we put on ourselves. It's not about me. It's, it's about him. You know, the other thing that I would say, I I found that a lot of people that complain, that struggle with complaining, um, a lot of times it's just they don't have anybody to talk to. They just want to have conversations. There's always something deeper many times, not always, but if you're just so impatient and just annoyed and just, you're going to be more of a stumbling block than actually being able to help somebody. I love that point. And it goes with so many issues beyond complaining, but that's a great application of it. Just love, love covers a multitude of sins. Love, if we, if we just love people and interact with them and see them as more than the difficulties that they're bringing or the outer shell that they're, they're showing up as we really see the soul that Christ died for. And we keep investing in them and listening deeply to them and just caring about people it's amazing what they can learn to let go of and just work through once they feel heard, once they feel like they have a voice and they're valued. And then we can, we can work to the next step of the teaching. There are some people who tend very strongly towards sympathy and who have a lot of trouble letting go of other people's problems, Mm. which is a struggle and I don't know that there is a quick fix to that or any kind of fix to that, but we're not doing anybody any favors by ruining our lives because we can't convince somebody else to quit ruining their life. Right. Uh, we have to find a way to function. We have to find a way to, I hate to say emotionally distance ourselves because that's not really what I mean, but allow the problems on the outside to stay on the outside. We're aware of it. We're trying to address it. But my life is good where I am. I am connected to Jesus. I have hope. I have faith. Nothing that my brethren do is going to alter that. I don't want to make that sound unloving or whatever, because obviously we're praying for them and we're interacting with them. But we need to stay focused on the goal for ourselves. Because if, you know, like the psychologists always tell us, you know, if you can't help yourself, you can't help anybody else. There's a certain amount of truth in that. I think you can overplay that considerably, but uh, I think there's some truth in that. There's a place in Revelation 10 where John is told to eat the little book and it's bitter. And then there's a sweetness. I think there's a bitter sweetness just to being a Christian and to seeing the people that we love reject the Lord and then seeing what is on offer for them. Um, there's a bitter sweetness to so many aspects of what we do. Something that I've thought a lot about is God's decision to give us 
freedom to choose what we want to do. And that that comes from love. God is love. Yeah, I always think it's funny how in a lot of sci-fi movies or fantasy stories, there's something that takes away the choice. And that is to take control of someone else is not loving, even if you're forcing them to do what is best for them. And what a powerful truth that's just innate. It's just written. It's one of those Romans 2.15, you know, the, the law is written on our hearts kind of things. We recognize that to take away someone's freedom to choose even the bad thing is not loving. And so to see Jesus fail to save some people, you know, of course, he's not a failure. He brings the victory and he's, his love conquers anything that would oppose him if we bring it to him. But he doesn't save everybody. God is a father who all of his children don't make it back to him and won't be at home with him in eternity. Working through that aspect of allowing people the choice actually, I think, has made me more effective in influencing people, but it also comes with a bittersweetness. I think that's what you're talking about. It's not that we don't care. It's not that it doesn't bother us, but we have to have peace with God and peace in ourselves in spite of other people's choices. Yeah. It's Jesus looking over Jerusalem and saying, oh, I just want to gather you up, you know, but it's your choice of how that's going to go. I, the other piece that's difficult, you know, for me when I was younger and hopefully more mature now in this is that I may not be the right person to help somebody. And sometimes we kind of get in the way a little bit of that where, you know, I, there is somebody else or there may be other people that are better equipped to help someone and be willing to allow that person to do it. And the other difficulty sometimes, and this kind of goes with even when you're dealing with your own burdens is like first Peter, the fifth chapter we'll talk about, I just have to be willing to give it to God and I can't make anybody else give their burden to God, but I have to be willing to give mine to him and stop trying to carry it for him you know, and, and just allow him to do what he's told me he'll do can be such a difficult thing. I, I think a lot of Jesus looking over Jerusalem, I think we've all been in situations where you feel that I just want to take it from you. But he said, yeah, I can't. It's your choice. It's what you're going to do. And if our savior struggled with that, meaning it was a feeling that he had, a, a desire that he had, then we should have that too. But it's also understanding that we can't do anything that's beyond what he did, which was you weren't willing to do it. I'm here if you ever want to, but this is your cross to bear, and I'm certainly willing to help, but I can't carry it for you. Yeah, that's the Galatians 6, the two different burdens there, right? Bear one another's burdens. Each one has their own burden to bear. And, you know, those are different words there. We each have our own soldier's backpack, so to speak, to carry, but I can help you with some of what you have to do, but I can't take responsibility for you. You have to take responsibility for yourself. I have to, at some point, let go of the rope. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.